Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, if you would. 2 Peter chapter 2. As we said before in the series, we're unable to do any kind of review just because of what we're dealing with and the amount of time it would take. But uh, there are review notes of all the terms, because that's what we've been going through, are the various terms that are used in the Bible uh, for the unseen world, whether it's heaven, hell, etc., so that we can get a good comprehensive grasp on what the Scripture says concerning these things. So on page 5 in your bulletin is the review notes, if you uh, need to turn to that and kind of... Uh, help kind of bring you up to speed as to where we are and what we're going through and the ideas that are being developed um, at this time. So 2 Peter chapter 2 is where we will begin today. Let's bow for prayer. Father, as always, we are grateful to you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would be committed to your word. That, Father, it would be our desire to understand what the word says, to seek to answer our questions from your word. That you would help us, Father, to think biblically about all things that father you would help us to reason from the scripture we pray lord that you would help us to uh, grasp the idea that the word of god does have something to say on every facet of life help us father to see that there is an integration of all things uh, uh, from the word of god and that lord that we would uh, in particular as believers have the proper perspective of all things and so we ask lord, that you would bless our time Lord, we admit that we are finite, and there are times where we have difficulty uh, focusing on your word. We have difficulty thinking as we ought to think as believers. But Father, we know that you will help us in this way, because that would bring glory to Christ. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us at this time. Again, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for preserving it for us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow the destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them in the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. The term that we're going to look at uh, this morning, the first one, is is the word Tataris. And I will get to that in just a moment. In 2 Peter, as he, in chapter 2, as he deals with false prophets, one of the things that he is emphasizing here in the first part of chapter 2 is they are going to be judged by God. The destruction is coming towards them. It doesn't appear 
uh, or it, it may appear that that's not going to happen. But the idea is, rest assured, this is going to happen. So then what Peter does is, Peter then, in verse 4, is now going to begin to remind them of what God has done in the past to prove to them or to give them assurance that these false teachers are going to be dealt with by God and that God's judgment is always certain. It's always sure. So he begins in verse 4 by talking about these angels who sinned and the casting them down. And I was reading from the New King James. It uses the word hell. The New American Standard does not use that word. Uh, If you have that, it will use I mean, it does use that. It talks about them going into hell and then commits them to the pits of darkness. And we're going to get to to Taurus in a moment. Uh, But the idea here is that these angels who sinned, which is, I believe, going going back to the book of Genesis, they sinned, and so they are in a a place of, of confinement. They've been judged by God. This is... Peter's view of this as something that's happened historically, so it's, it's happened, it's factual, because he combines with that, uh, these angels of sin, moves on to Noah, so we know the context of that, we know about this flood that goes on, then after that he immediately moves to Sodom and Gomorrah, two real cities, they were destroyed by God, um, judged by God, and then talks about Lot, and Lot being delivered, and so the idea then is that God is not blind to what is happening, that this is going to happen. So the sixth term then, as we look at the various terms uh, dealing with the unseen word, is the word Tataris. Um, it is a Greek term, and it is only found um, in this passage. Um, if you, let me read to you from the Young's literal translation. It reads this way. For if God, uh, for if God messengers who sinned uh, did not spare, but with the chains of thick gloom, having cast them down to Tataris, did deliver them to judgment, having been reserved. In fact, in some of your Bibles, depending on what kind of Bible you have, but oftentimes in Bibles, there'll be like a, a notation, sometimes next to different words uh, in a verse. Uh, sometimes it's a letter or a number. And if you go to the middle column or the bottom of the page, depending on how your Bible is set up, uh, if you look at uh, what that letter indicates, sometimes it may, it may say L-I-T, literally, and then it's the word Tataris. Uh, and that is the word that's referred to here, um, with the word hell. Um, so basically with this reference we have here and what Peter's talking about, and one more thing uh, before I go on to some of the deductions we can, we can draw from this, Peter writes all of this as if the people he's writing to, that they're very familiar with what he's talking about. There's not a lot of explanation. For example, uh, for those who have gone to church for many, many years, if we suddenly make a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, most people kind of know what we're talking about. They understand the immorality of the cities. They understand the story of Lot and the fire and brimstone coming down and destroying the... We, we immediately recognize that. So there are times that we can make a reference to that. We don't have to go into a deep explanation. Um, well, in the same way, he, he does the same thing with these angels that sinned. Uh, so the, it, it leads us to understand what Jewish theology was. Not all Jewish theology during the time of Jesus and the time of the apostles, was wrong. A great deal of it was correct. Uh, They did reject Christ. That was wrong. They were in error. But just because um, something might be labeled Jewish theology doesn't necessarily mean by itself that it was a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. They did have a great deal of it correct and a proper understanding of it. Uh, Later on, uh, sometimes, 
<coughs> there, there are those who kind of moved away from what we might call a Jewish understanding of Scripture. We say that to kind of differentiate. Uh, for example, today if you're buying various commentaries or looking at different studies on the Scripture, sometimes there'll be a, a label that's used uh, having a Jewish understanding. And the idea there is that um, the individuals who are making comments are trying to ensure that they, are, that they recognize and they incorporate the, the fuller context of what is being written in Scripture. And at the same time, we think, we think of context being, well, the historical time. Like if we study the epistles of Paul, we say, well, what was going on uh, in the life of Paul? What was the world like? You know, where did he live? What was the structure of those countries like? All those types of things help us to better understand uh, what he's talking about. Well, what those who are trying to understand the Bible and keeping it in context, sometimes you take one more step back and say, well, it's a very much of a Jewish book. Now, being a Jewish book, like you would at any time when you use context, you're not looking for it to change what the Scripture says, but you do want to have a deeper, fuller understanding, and it can keep you from error. And so there's been kind of a renewed interest over the past 20, 30 years um, uh, in in maybe Jewish studies or having an an understanding of Jewish background to help us to grasp better what's going on. An example of that would be uh, when uh, when we went through the Gospels, we came to that story where Jesus heals uh, a demoniac who's uh, who's blind. And when he does that, the, uh, the, the people there, the crowd, they begin to, as they stand in amazement, they begin to ask themselves, what's going on here? Could this be the son of David? It's clearly a messianic title. They're asking, is this the Messiah? Well, if, you don't, if, if we don't understand the Jewish context of what's going on, uh, you can kind of just read through that and go on. But when you go back and you look at the context of what's going on and, and how Jews understood the scripture and how they were taught, both good and bad, things that were uh, clearly from scripture and things that weren't, we then begin to understand, or well, we see then that the Jews, uh, in their teaching, as they would study the Old Testament, which is all they had, uh, had a discussion among themselves because they were waiting for the Messiah. And the question is, is how will we recognize the Messiah? And so in their discussions, uh, they, they came up with three miracles that only the Messiah could do. I'm giving you the very short version. Uh, but there were three miracles only the Messiah could do. And they were all taught that. Now, Christ was obligated to do those miracles because he did fulfill the scripture but these were miracles that they, as they studied the Bible, said, well, there's three miracles that have not been done in Israel, so when the Messiah comes, he will be able to do miracles that no one else has ever done. Well, it's not a coincidence that those three miracles that are named, Jesus did those three miracles twice. And one of them was having the ability, where Jesus showed the power that he had, to cast a demon out of an individual who, where the demon made the person mute, uh, uh, where the person basically was not able to speak. And the reason for that is because the Jews themselves also practiced exorcism. Somebody would have a demon or demons, and they would, uh, there was a formula they would go through. And part of that was they would get the name of the demon. And then once they got the name of the demon from the person who could tell them, uh, they would then go through this, this ritual, and they would go about casting out the demon. So if the person was mute and they could not get the name of the demon, they were stuck. There's nothing they could do. So they taught, ah, but the Messiah... Because he is the anointed one of God, he, he will be able to do this. So when Jesus then cast the demon out of that young man who couldn't speak, 
Everybody knew what that meant. That then helps us to understand why the Pharisees that were there suddenly launch into a panic because they were there following Jesus around, which that was their responsibility. They were, they were following a messianic movement, and so their job was to investigate to see if it was the Messiah or not. We also know from reading the scripture that, they, that as a whole, the Sanhedrin, the leadership, pretty much didn't like Jesus. He wasn't what they thought the Messiah should be. So they were, they were investigating, but they were looking for things against him. Uh, and so when Jesus casts out this demon, and the people then begin to ask out loud, could this be the son of David? Those Pharisees that were there, they had to say something, or they were going to lose the people. Remember, they were concerned about people being loyal to them. And so when they spoke up, they, they only had one of two choices. Yes, this is the Messiah, or no, he's not. If he's not, then how on earth did he just do that, which you taught only the Messiah could do? And what did they say? They said he's not the Messiah. Oh, he's able to do this because he's empowered by what? Beelzebub. He himself is demon-possessed. That's why Jesus then reveals the ridiculousness of their logic by saying a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Why would Satan cast out Satan? That just doesn't make any sense. But that then becomes a critical moment in the life of Christ. So you see what happens is the Jewish background, the Jewish context, really enhances our understanding of that event. It helps us to see that what appears, what can, what's revealed as a few verses actually is a monumental moment and, and has great meaning and depth. So the same thing then when we come to Peter here. Peter's writing, this letter, is, it's, it's a Jewish letter. It's to a Jewish audience primarily. And so when he makes this reference here uh, to these individuals, he writes as if, they already know what he's talking about. It doesn't go into a lot of explanation. So when we look at this and talks about these angels who sinned, which again uh, goes back to this judgment uh, when, when God flooded the world, which is uh, Noah, which is mentioned in verse 5, uh, and, and uh, what goes on. We, we can draw some deductions from this. So I'll go through them quickly, and then we're going to move on to the next one. Number one, this place, uh, which again is translated hell or literally is Tartarus, it's called chains or the pits of darkness, depending on what translation that you have. So obviously that's a very negative. That's, we're just making observations, so it's a negative place. Uh, it is a place for fallen angels. It's connected here with the fallen angels uh, with Noah. Uh, we covered the word abyss before. Uh, the abyss is also connected with fallen angels. But Tartarus is in the connection with the fallen angels that are connected with those who sinned in the time of Noah. Uh, the angels that are mentioned in this verse are also mentioned in the book of Jude. So flip over to Jude real quick. Just, just fly to Revelation and then back up one book. And uh, the book of Jude, and I will read verses 5, 6, and 7. I'm going to be reading this from the New American Standard. It reads this way. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they were in the same way, as they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. 
Now, I'm going to read to you verse 6 again, 6 and 7, from the English Standard Version, uh, because it kind of helps us maybe a little more with the wording to understand what he's speaking about. I believe he is speaking about these angels that sinned back in Genesis uh, during the time of the flood. And it says, And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. So verse 7 is telling us that the sin that was committed in Sodom and Gomorrah, which was sexual immorality, that this sexual immorality is very similar to what these angels involved themselves in back during the time of, of Noah. And so that's, that's the connection there. So because of this connection, there's the, we have a connection between 2 Peter 2 and Jude verses 6 and 7. So these angels that I believe are the same as the sons of God in Genesis 6. When you read in Genesis 6, it talks about the sons of God. That's referring to angels. There will be fallen angels. Uh, and these fallen angels in some way intermarried with human women to, to corrupt the seed of woman. Now we, so we don't know if they possessed men, if they took on the form of men. There's all kinds of speculation as to those who believe this as to how it happened. But this is what happened. And as a result, they left their proper domain, as it says in Jude, and they were punished. As it says in Second Peter, they were placed into Taurus. Uh, that is the oldest understanding of what took place in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, there's a few of the theories out there as to who the sons of God are. They don't really hold any water when you follow them through consistently. Um, it, it, this, there's kind of a disconnect with that, I believe, and what is being stated. So the sixth thing then about this is Tartarus is the portion of Sheol or Hades. Remember that Sheol and Hades is the same place. Uh, it is a permanent place of confinement for the fallen angels that sinned in Genesis chapter 6. While the abyss is a temporary place of confinement for fallen angels, uh, a place where fallen angels or demons come and go for periods of time, Tartarus is very different because it connects the word eternal with them. In both those passages, that's where they're sent. It's an eternal place of confinement. They will never be released uh, from there. They will eventually go from Tartarus to the lake of fire. And we will get to that when we get to the lake of fire. Uh, these angels will never be free again. So again, the reason why these angels are kept in a special place instead of the abyss is because of the special nature of their sin. Which again is given to us in Jude uh, verses 6 and 7. There's a uniqueness to the sin. Uh, as of what they have done. They left their proper domain uh, is the issue. Uh, when, when I mentioned that they're seeking to, to corrupt the seed of woman, um, I believe that basically there are several uh, attempts by the devil uh, in, in history, in scripture, to prevent the coming of Christ. Uh, it's uh, given to us in Genesis 3 that the seed of woman is the one that's going to crush the head of Satan. And so the theory is pretty simple. Corrupt the seed of woman, he can't be born. And that's what was going on. Uh, and so it ended. And so all of humanity was destroyed except for Noah, uh, his wife, his sons, and their wives, as you know the story. So again, these are, uh, again, the, the angels in Genesis that uh, in one way or another, we don't know how, but they took on male form and they intermarried with human women to corrupt the seed of woman. And again, that was uh, done in light of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. They produced a grotesque race, and because of that grotesque race, uh, the evil of man reached uh, its epitome 
um, necessitating a worldwide flood to destroy all of humanity. Now, we, we do fine without demons. Uh, we're on that track again as we become unbelievably evil. But that is what takes place. So again, Tartarus is a portion of Sheol or Hades. It's a permanent place of confinement uh, for those angels that sinned. So the seventh word that's used is the word hell. Now, the word hell, it's an English word. Um, it's, it comes from a German, uh, a German root word, which means to hide or to cover. There is no Hebrew or Greek term for hell in Scripture. Uh, the, the Hebrew Greek terms that are used, it's, it's hell, Tataris, all that. So hell, is, it's a German word. It's an English word. Uh, it's not bad to use it, but it's not a biblical term. It's technically not a biblical term. Uh, so it's not the best term to use, but uh, it's been used for so long. In a sense, we're kind of stuck with it, but that's fine. Uh, we can use it. We just want to make sure that we're accurate uh, with, the, uh, with the term. So the concept of hell, as you read through various theological um, books through history, uh, it includes some of the concepts of Sheol and Hades that we've covered. Um, it is also found in the concepts of Abaddon and the pit that we've read about. Um, but again, the Bible itself, or the scriptures themselves, the, the, the Greek and the Hebrew, does not use a special term for hell. Um, what people call hell is what the Old Testament calls abandoned or the pit. Uh, what people call hell is the unrighteous side of Sheol or Hades. Remember uh, that when uh, in the Old Testament, as you read about Sheol, when man died, all men, all women, when they died, went to Sheol. And there was a righteous side and an unrighteous side. We also have mentioned for us the abyss and Tartarus. So you have uh, those who talk about the righteous going to Sheol it's not, it's not a place to be dreaded. But the unrighteous side is very clearly a place to be dreaded. Now, we'll clear all that up as we kind of march through these terms and get to the cross of Christ. But, but that is what's going on with this. So based on all the things we've already said about the unrighteous side of Sheol or Hades and what we've said about Abaddon or the pit, uh, hell contains unsaved humans only. Right? Unsaved human beings go to hell. Today, you could use the word hell or Hades interchangeably. You would be correct. Because today, believers no longer go to Hades. Uh, remember, because Hades was divided into several compartments. There was a, a righteous side. That's no longer there. Uh, the Bible speaks of the believer when he dies, we go to be with the Lord. We'll get to how that happened. Not today. Um, but we'll get to how that happened. All right? But we also have to be careful how we use it, because sometimes we say, well, if, if an individual dies in unbelief, they would die and go to hell forever. That's not true. You don't, go to die, you don't die and go to hell forever. We're being technical, but we'll get it all together in a moment. So one of the things I think is helpful, though, is because hell is technically not a good word, it's a great word. Because then when you talk to an individual and they say, well, so-and-so, when they die, they're going to die and go to hell and they're going to be there forever. You can say, well, that's not exactly true. And then you can engage them in a conversation. Let them know what you learned about hell. And then you can talk about heaven and hell and the gospel. Um, don't assume just because somebody thinks someone else is going to die and go to hell, that means that they're not going to die and go to hell. They may not really know the gospel. And so it gives us an opportunity to maybe to help clear up some things or ask them. So when you say they're going to go to hell, what do you mean by that? And, you know, that can lead to a, a very good conversation. So based on what we know about uh, what was known of Abaddon or the pit, uh, we can determine the condition of those in hell. First, 
they exist as shades. That's an old word that's used in the Old Testament, S-H-A-D-E-S. Uh, they are shades or ghosts or spirits of the dead. Uh, merely shades with no more reality than that. Uh, when the Bible describes people already in the unrighteous side of Sheol, it describes them by using a Hebrew term that means shades. It's a masculine noun that means shades or departed spirits. It's the deceased ones or dead ones. Uh, the term always occurs in the plural form. Uh, Raphaim uh, is, is a word uh, and consistently denotes those who died and entered into a shadowy existence within Sheol. So when a non-believer dies and goes to hell, uh, they do not come back. All right? So this also helps us a lot of the superstitions that people have. This idea that so-and-so came back from the dead and talked to you. No, they didn't. Especially if they're a non-believer. They don't get out of this place until a very specific moment in time. Uh, if someone does have an experience with a spirit being that they think is some dead past relative, that would be a demon. All right? They seek to, you know, they want to fool you. So it's actually worse than you thought. Um, so if, you're, if you have an, an Uncle David who died and he was not a believer uh, and you go to some seance, which you really shouldn't do, but if you do, and Uncle David comes to speak to you, it's not him. And you may say, well, how did this person know? Um, there's a lot of ways to explain that, but it's not David. It's a demon, and it's a bad thing for you to be there. Um, so the idea then is that uh, what the scripture says is clear and true, and you do not want to go to this place. Um, there's, a whole, there's not a whole lot of detail given, but that's enough. Uh, let me read to you from the book of Proverbs. Uh, the, the, the key verse is verse 18, but I'm going to read in verse 13, just so you can kind of get a context of what's going on here in Proverbs. This is Proverbs chapter 9, and I'll begin reading in verse 13. It says, the, uh, the woman folly is loud. She is undisciplined and without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come in here, she says, to those who lack judgment. Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious, but little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. Uh, the New American Standard would read this way, but he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Um, if I go one more stage to become very literal, in Young's literal translation it says, and he hath not known that uh, Raphaim are there in deep places of Sheol, her invited ones. So again, we can see uh, what, it's, what it's speaking about. Uh, this place of the unrighteous dead is in a deep place in Sheol. It's not a good place to be. Isaiah 14, 9 reads, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. So these are, I hate to use this term because it can kind of have the wrong connotation, but it's it, in a sense, they're kind of disembodied. Um, they are suffering. Absolutely, they're suffering. Uh, we know that, and we'll get to it again, but when we get to, to judgment and the lake of fire, it's actually worse than the suffering they're experiencing now. Uh, but this is kind of a, a murky existence uh, as far as how we would uh, understand it. Um, but it, the scripture does say, and we'll, we won't look at this now, we will get to it later, but they are in torment. You get that from Luke 16. So this is not a place where they're just kind of kicking back and just kind of waiting. Um, they, they are suffering where they are. Um, there is a total absence of righteousness where they are. 
they are separated from God, and it is a place of judgment. In other words, remember that, uh, we've mentioned this before, that when we talk about the judgment of God, when the non-believer stands before God, God is not trying to determine if they're going to go to heaven or hell. That, that doesn't happen. When the unbeliever stands before God, it is to determine their sentence. They're already guilty. That's already been determined. So the individual who dies and goes to, goes to hell, as, as the term, the way that we're using it, that is punishment. It's the first stage of punishment. It gets worse after this. So it's a very real place that we're speaking of. People, and we have to remind ourselves, maybe more so now than ever because of the kind of culture that we live in, but when non-believers die, this is where they go. This is not a good place. They are suffering. And no matter how good we think they are, no matter how religious we think they are, no matter how much we love them, we cannot save them from that place. Only Christ can do that. And that's why we must share the gospel of Christ. And that's why we pray that God will open their eyes. We pray that God will give us opportunities to share the gospel. Never be ashamed of the gospel. The Bible tells us clearly that it is, the gospel itself is the power of God to salvation to those who believe. Period. And there's testimony after testimony of individuals, of all kinds of individuals, who uh, have come to understand their sinfulness before God. It's, it's a modern idea that we think that it just doesn't happen. That, that that's just an archaic idea and that no one is, is going to really feel guilty for their sins because of how our society is. Remember, it's God who convicts of sin. You and I, we're not, we don't have to do that, we, and we can't do that. I can't really make someone feel guilty for their sins against God. I might be able to make a person feel guilty for a little while about something, but to make someone feel guilty over their sin, I can't do that, and neither can you. So you can't scold somebody in the hell. But we do want to present the, the truth of what the Word of God says. And the idea with hell is just simply that the individual is deserving of that because of the wrong they have done. And just this morning, I was reading a couple of testimonies of some individuals, um, very brilliant individuals, one at Harvard and, and I think one at Yale, uh, who even at today, which you know, those schools are unbelievably liberal in every way, uh, became convinced of their sinfulness and, that, and, and their need of forgiveness and so that's why we continue to go back to the gospel. It is the only message uh, that will save man from his root problem and from his major problem. So hell is where they are going to go for now. And uh, even though it may not be the best term, it's a very good term. And it's one that people are familiar with. And we can use that. The eighth term uh, is the word Gehenna. Um, and I'll try, try to speak much more quickly than I am because uh, I want to get through this. It's a Greek term, and there's three things about it, uh, and we'll look at a couple of passages uh, in just a moment. But number one, um, the origin of the concept of Gehenna. Gehenna is a Greek term. It comes from uh, the Hebrew, a Hebrew word. is actually a combination of two different Hebrew words. Um, G-E-I, or G, uh, is, is uh, the first word. The second is Hinnom. Uh, it means the Valley of Hinnom. It's a valley outside the walls of Jerusalem. It's a valley that encircles Jerusalem along the west side of the wall around to the uh, southern side where it meets the other valley known as the Kidron Valley coming down on the east side. The Valley of Hinnom uh, in the Old Testament was a place where some of the wicked kings of Israel practiced human sacrifice. 
So if you want to read about that, you can see that in 2 Chronicles 28, in Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, they would sacrifice their children. There were even judgments against Israel uh, because there were times that they, even though they had adopted uh, Baal worship and worshiping Molech, uh, they, which called for child sacrifice, there were times that Israel sacrificed more children than those who were originally of that pagan religion. It was insane what they were doing. Uh, and, and in the sacrificing of their children, there was this idea of burning them with fire uh, is what they would do. I, I do not remember. I think in some cases they might burn them alive. Uh, but it was a very grotesque thing that was done. And so that's the reference here. When they speak of Gehenna, uh, they would remember uh, this place as being where child sacrifice took place. And that would definitely be associated with fire. So the Old Testament concept, again, comes from the burning of human beings. And so it moves into this New Testament concept uh, with the word Gehenna. And so it describes the unseen world and the eternal burning of humans. That's the idea. That's the concept behind Gehenna. Uh, Secondly, uh, there are 12 references to Gehenna uh, in the scripture. Eleven of these references are in the Gospels. Um, and one is outside the Gospels. And I have some references there if you want to look them up uh, to where that word is used. Um, from those 12 references uh, to Gehenna, uh, there are four things that I want to just kind of throw out there very, very quickly. Number one, Gehenna is the eternal home of the lost, both angels and men. So this is not um, uh, hell as we think of it. Um, uh, this is not, uh, um, this, this is a, a it's the same as the lake of fire. That's what we're, gonna, that's what we're getting to. Uh, is Gehenna and the lake of fire, is, it's the same place. Uh, this is just the official term. Lake of fire is used in other places, but it's the same place. It is a punishment that includes both body and soul. So the idea then, again, is that when an individual dies in unbelief and, and they die and go to hell, they are suffering. How they experience physical pain, I don't know. Um, but there's this idea that there's a, a worse suffering that's to come, and that's Gehenna. And so there's some kind of, I don't want to say it's a glorified body, because only believers get that. But there is very clearly a, a suffering uh, that is worse in Gehenna than there is in hell now. Uh, that's why it's very important that the word Gehenna should never be translated hell, um, because Gehenna is the permanent final place. Hell is uh, temporary. Um, uh, hell is a place for the soul only. Gehenna is the eternal place that includes the body and the soul. Uh, Gehenna is an eternal torment. Again, hell is temporary, uh, but again, Gehenna is eternal. And then uh, Gehenna is also associated with fire, and fire is the source of torment. So then along with that, we'll look at the term lake of fire as we wrap this up. Uh, lake of fire is found four times. All of it is in the book of Revelation. That's what it's called. Uh, when you look at the lake of fire uh, in Revelation, which is Revelation 19, verse 20, chapter 20, verse 10 and 14, and chapter 21, uh, we know these four things. The lake of fire is the eternal home uh, of all the lost ones. Again, both angels and men. So the angels in Tartarus, when they are finally judged, they're thrown to the lake of fire. Satan, lake of fire. Uh, false prophet, lake of fire. Antichrist, lake of fire. The unbelievers of today, lake of fire. The unbelievers of yesterday, when the final judgment, lake of fire. Hell and its contents are emptied into the lake of fire. Um, that is what's going to happen. Again, the punishment in the lake of fire includes both the soul and the body. Uh, both death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. 
death refers to the material part of man, the body. Hades refers to the immaterial part of man, the soul or the spirit. So the lake of fire uh, is this place. And remember, we live in a society that has mocked these ideas for decades very openly. That mocking is very successful in getting weak-minded Christians to drift away from this belief, what the scripture teaches, that this is the destination of those who do not believe. Many of us have been influenced. We're almost ashamed to say, well, yeah, I kind of believe that people kind of really do go to hell. You don't have to be ashamed of it. Now, we shouldn't be happy about it. And that's sometimes where Christians have gotten in trouble. It's almost, we almost talk with glee that there are those who are going to be, end up in this place. We, we're very far from the heart of God if, if we come across that way or if we, if we state it that way. But this mockery has been very successful that in, in the world's point of view, they, they already view religion very negatively, especially those religions that deal with uh, sin and the issues of sin. So the world's willing to accept the ideas of religion where everybody goes to heaven. They're willing to accept this idea that in the end we're all going to make it somewhere to someplace good. They're willing to accept this idea that maybe no one makes it to anywhere because there's nothing out there. But this, they act offended when we begin to talk about judgment, especially if the discussion leads into specific kinds of sins. Because the idea is that because of evolution, that we all are continuing to evolve, that not just is evolution that man came from a monkey, but the idea that society and mankind are evolving. And so because of science and medicine and our social advancements, supposedly, we have moved away from the old superstitious way of thinking. The old religious superstitious way of thinking was how maybe the priest or you know, the kahunas would control and manipulate people. We know better. And, of course, the idea that's part of man's rebellion against God. We do not want anyone to tell us what to do, especially morally. We want to decide what is best for us. It goes back to the temptation of Eve. When she was tempted by Satan to to, uh, partake of the fruit, remember that when Satan said that you will be like God, knowing good from evil, that does not mean that she would somehow know the category of good and evil, because she didn't know. She did know. She knew that it was disobedience to God to take the fruit. Right? She, she wasn't stupid and had no idea. She, but the idea behind that phrasing is really this. You will be like God, and you will determine what is right and what is wrong. Isn't that what our society does today? It used to be the society as a whole, because they borrowed a morality from the Bible, condemned homosexuality. We've moved away from that as a society, big time, in all different types of ways. What's what's the reasoning behind that? Well, that was archaic. We know better. Religion and mythology, that's now the same category. If it makes you feel better, if it makes you feel that's good for you. And then the individual act offended if we say that those who practice sin, which includes that, that that is immoral and will be punished by God. And I want to make sure that they understand that that's not the only sin God punishes. That all sin that we commit are acts of rebellion against God. But that's not excluded. And so our society really looks down on that idea. And so the mockery then, the, the mockery thing is really revved up. Um, 
uh, to, to move us away from that. And so that's why we need to continue to be in the Word. It's not, it's not a brainwashing. It's not that, we're, you know, that we, want to, we don't want to hold on to our superstition no matter what. This is clearly what the Scripture speaks of. You, you notice that as you look at these words, that the word Gehenna, that most of the occurrences of that word appear in the Gospels. That's Jesus talking. Jesus spoke the truth. God sending Christ was because God must punish sin because he's holy and righteous. If he doesn't punish sin, he's unjust. Remember that. In the same way that we would think a judge is unjust. If, if you were attending the trial of a pedophile, of a serial pedophile, and the evidence was clear that this guy is guilty, period, and the judge says on the day of sentence, let's say the jury finds him guilty, and the judge then says, well, I think that he suffered enough embarrassment, slams the mallet and says, he's free to go. We would not only be angry at the judge or just angry that this individual didn't receive justice because we believe that he should be punished. We would also conclude that the judge himself had to be what? Evil. Because we would say only an evil man would do that. So if God, so the man who, let's say there's the serial pedophile now who dies, who was never caught, if at the final judgment, God then says, hey, I know you're a weak. I'm all loving and all forgiving. Come on in. What wouldn't that make him? That makes him evil. He's not evil. And it's a fearful thing because that's not the only sin he's judging. Because he has told us and explained to us that all sin, including that, is rebellion against him. And so therefore all men are under the wrath of God. And so God in his kindness sent Christ, who also explained to us about Gehenna, to take our punishment, to literally be punished for our sins, so that we then could escape the wrath to come, so that we could escape this judgment and be with the Lord. So these terms are more than just interesting. These terms are more than just helping us to clarify exactly what the Bible says and doesn't say about what's going to happen. It is presented to us as if this is factual and true because it is. It is not written in a mythological way. And as believers, we must, I believe, embrace all of this. We must believe in this and what it says. And not live in fear but living gratitude to God who has saved us. And though we may be at times reminded, and maybe we will at times, and we have, will shed tears for our children and grandchildren as we pray for their salvation because we understand the seriousness of this. We cannot somehow just pretend this doesn't exist and somehow pretend their way into heaven because that doesn't work. And there have been people who've gone to church their whole life who when faced with the death of one who's very close to them, child, friend, etc., who they are, they may not want to admit it, but are fairly certain that person was not a believer. They have a crisis of faith. And they then begin to look on the internet, Christian bookstores, trying to find somebody who is supposedly Christian, who will agree with, with what they want to be true, and that there isn't really a Gehenna, that there really isn't a lake of fire, that there really isn't a hell. That in the end, we're all going to make it. And that is the 
That would be called the doctrines of demons. So we don't say that to scare anybody, though it's a fearful thing. That's reality. And that is what we, uh, again, cling to. Not superstitiously, in faith. Our faith is not irrational. It is based on the credible, valid word of God that has been passed down to us from generation to generation, which has been proven to be what we have is exactly what they had before, and that this contains for us God's revelation to us for our good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your kindness and your grace and for your willingness to reveal to us, Father, all of the truth that we may understand what it is that we are facing. I guess, Father, in one way, it would In a sinful way, it might be nice to imagine for a moment that in the end, no one really goes to hell. That it was just some kind of idea that even though it terrifies us, that in the end, it's not really how things are. But Lord, we know that's just foolishness. Unfortunately, that's exactly how things are. In the same way that we warn others to not sell drugs, because if they get arrested, they will go to prison. We can't change the truth and the reality of that. We cannot change the truth and the reality of this. And because you are good and just, because you are loving and righteous, because you are benevolent and a judge, we know, Lord, these things must be. And so first we bow and thank you for seeing to it that we heard and embraced the gospel of Christ. Because, Father, we, like everyone else, were condemned. And that is truly a fearful thing. We pray that you remind us that what the Bible speaks of is very real. And that, our, that we all have people that we love that are in great danger. And we know, Lord, they may think it foolish if we speak of hell. But, Father, we don't have to try to convince them of anything. We can simply share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you help us to clearly communicate that and to rely upon you to convict them of sin, to rely upon you to convict them of judgment that is to come, that they simply need to see that we firmly believe that and that it is out of love and concern that we share these things. Forgive us, Father, the times that we either are arrogant or we can sound arrogant when we share these things with others. I pray, Lord, that you help us to be broken and humble. And Father, our attitude would never be a detriment to anyone embracing the gospel of Christ. I thank you so much again, Lord, for being so patient with us. I do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Before we sing our our closing hymn, let me just remind you once again that as we speak of these things, that, that these things can be very sobering and Perhaps you are doubting, or maybe you know that you have never believed in Christ, that you've not trusted in Christ for salvation. And I want you, many of you, want you to understand what that means. And so if you have any questions, please feel free. You can speak to me after the service. You can email me. You can text me. It is the 21st century. We can meet. I'll meet you anywhere. We can meet in my office. I'll meet you at Starbucks. I've talked to people at hell about hell at Starbucks, so I don't care where it is. I'll go to your home. But I do, I'll do everything I can to help answer whatever questions you have. There will be no strong-arming you. Uh, I want you uh, to believe in the gospel with your eyes wide open.
to see clearly. And there are many here that are more than willing to do that. And so I would encourage you, if these things begin to disturb you and you're thinking about these things, uh, to let me or someone here know. uh, And we'll do all that we can to answer your questions.